Let's open our Bibles together to the book of Romans, chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. I'm going to read and preach verses 11 through 14 this morning, finishing up the chapter. We all know what it's like to be sleepy, to be tired. Perhaps you're feeling a bit tired and sleepy this morning, and if so, I'll do everything I can as the preacher not to make that worse for you during the sermon. We all know what it's like to feel sleepy and drowsy and tired. You can't think straight. You can't focus on anything. You don't want to do anything but sleep. We all know what that's like physically, but most of us also know what it's like spiritually, to be spiritually sleepy. Well, the Apostle Paul in the verses before us this morning tells us in no uncertain terms to wake up. He tells us to wake from sleep because it's daytime now and our final salvation is near. He tells us therefore to put off sin in our lives and to put on Christ He calls us really to a spiritual wakefulness in light of the second coming. And that's what we're going to consider together this morning from these verses. The call to wake up because it's daytime and our final salvation is near and to put off sin and to put on Christ. Let's look to Christ in prayer now together and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, so often we feel kind of like the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane who fell asleep while you were praying to the Father. We humbly recognize our tendency toward a spiritual sleepiness. But we understand that you call us to a spiritual wakefulness. You call us to wake up and to put on Christ we want to understand what that means and how to do that. So would you help us now as we give our attention to these verses together. Teach us and reprove us and correct us where we need that. And train us in righteousness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 13, I'll start reading at verse 10 so we can get a running start. And I'll read through the end of the chapter. This is the living and active word of God. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires." Two main points. Paul says, wake up 
in verse 11, first part of verse 12. Wake up because it's daytime and our final salvation is near. And then he says, secondly, put on Christ in the second half of verse 12 down through verse 14. Put off sin and put on Christ. That's what we're called to in these verses. Let's consider those two points now more closely. Main point number one, wake up. Verse 11, you'll see, begins with the words, besides this, this referring to loving one another because love fulfills the law in verse 10. So besides loving one another because love fulfills the law, another reason you should love another is because you know the time, verse 11, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. So that's what besides this is doing. It's giving us a second reason for loving one another. You should love one another because love fulfills the law and besides this, in addition to this, you should love one another because you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. It's time for you to wake up, he's saying. The night is far gone and the day is at hand as he says at the beginning of the next verse, so wake up. The alarm clock has gone off and it's not time to hit the snooze button. It's time to wake up. It's time to get up. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep, he says. Now sleep here, as the ESV study Bible helpfully points out, is a metaphor for a life of moral carelessness and laxity. It's a metaphor, sleep for moral carelessness and laxity. So he's not talking about physical sleep, he's talking about spiritual sleep. He's talking about moral sleepiness, ethical drowsiness. And he's saying that as Christians, we need to wake from that sleep. We need to get up from that moral and ethical slumber. And of course, in one sense, we're already awake, aren't we? Because God has awakened us spiritually in his mercy. But in another sense, we need to awake continually in the Christian life. We need to get awake and stay awake. Or or to change the metaphor slightly to understand this, we're already alive from the dead spiritually, but we also need to look alive. We need to live We need to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus and live accordingly. So in a similar way, we've already been awakened, but we need to stay awake spiritually. Or perhaps there are times when we we nod off and we need to wake back up spiritually. There are two other passages I want to show you briefly that will help, I think, us understand this a bit more. Ephesians 5 and 1 Thessalonians 5. If you'll turn ahead to those two passages, we'll read them briefly or you can just listen to them. Ephesians 5 and 1 Thessalonians 5. Very similar passages that will shed some light on our passage. Ephesians 5 starting at verse 8 and I'll read down through verse 16 and hear what God says to us here. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 8 Begins with the verse we considered earlier on the front of the bulletin. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. 
and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. So we were darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. And so we should walk as children of light. That's the logic of this set of verses. We were dead, but now we are alive. And so we should live for Christ. We were asleep, but now we're awake. And so we should look carefully how we walk how we live. Then turn ahead to 1 Thessalonians 5, and I'll read verses 5 through 8 of that chapter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting at verse 5. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. We are children of light. We are children of the day. So we shouldn't sleep as others do, we should keep awake and be sober. So wake up spiritually. That's what Paul is saying in each of those two passages and in our passage today. Don't hit the snooze button again. Wake up and stay awake. I think the main ways we do this are through prayer and through the word and through each other. Through prayer, we stay awake spiritually because we keep up communion with God through prayer. Through the word, we stay awake spiritually because we hear God speak to us by his word. And through each other, we stay awake spiritually because we keep each other awake, we help each other stay awake. Just like you might keep each other awake on a long car ride by talking to each other. We can keep each other awake spiritually by talking to each other about our lives and about the things of God and how the two intersect. So we stay awake through prayer, through the word, and through each other. Besides this, you know the time, Paul says, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Why should we wake from sleep, though? For, or because, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Wake up because it's daytime and our final salvation is near, Paul says. 
And he's not talking about our initial salvation, our justification, nor is he talking about our ongoing sanctification, our ongoing salvation, our sanctification. Rather, he's talking about our final salvation, our glorification. And he's saying that the reason we're to wake up is because our final salvation is near. It's near. Again, like when you're on one of those long car rides and perhaps your your children are asleep in the back. When your final destination is near, you might say to them, wake up. We're almost there. We're almost home. We're to wake up spiritually because we're almost home. We're to wake up spiritually because our final destination is near. Our final salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed in Christ. Each new day gets us one day closer to glory. And that's a good thought to start your day with. No matter what challenges may come that day, no matter what things may happen that day, as a Christian, you can say, today is gonna bring me one day closer to glory. Today is gonna be one more day closer to home. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. You know, as believers, we're called to live in light of a certainty and a possibility. Borrowing that pair of words from one of the commentaries I read. We're called to live in light of the certainty of the second coming and the possibility that it might be today. Those things are often rather distant from our minds, sadly. But the second coming is coming. It's a certainty. And it might happen today. That's a possibility. And we should seek to live each day in light of that certainty and that possibility. Wake up because it's daytime. Our final salvation is near. That's what Paul's saying in verse 11, the first part of verse 12. Let's look at the rest of what he says under our second main point now. Put on Christ. Put on Christ. There are three contrasts Paul draws for us here, one in each verse. And the first is between the works of darkness and the armor of light. A contrast between the works of darkness and the armor of light. Look at the second half of verse 12. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. We're to cast off the works of darkness, to throw off the works of darkness. Like you might throw off a smelly shirt you've worn all day working in the yard. You take it off quickly, you cast it off, put on a clean shirt. We're to cast off the works of darkness. We're to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness as we read earlier in Ephesians 5, verse 11. Remember the words of Jesus in John 3. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. The works of darkness are evil and wicked 
and are contrary to the light of Christ. Therefore, we should cast off the works of darkness. And instead, Paul says, we should put on the armor of light. Like he said in the verses I read earlier from 1 Thessalonians 5, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. The armor of light, we could say, includes the breastplate of faith and love, and the helmet of the hope of salvation. And Ephesians 6 adds the belt of truth, and the shield of faith, and the sword of the spirit, and as shoes for our feet, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And when we put on the whole armor of God through prayer and by faith, then we're able to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Then we're able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So let's cast off the filthy rags of the works of darkness and put on the bright and shining armor of light. So the first contrast Paul draws is between the works of darkness and the armor of light in verse 12. The second contrast is between walking properly and walking immorally in verse 13. Between walking properly and walking immorally. Look at verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, he says. Again, because it is daytime. It's day. That's why it's time to wake up, because it's the day. The day is at hand, verse 12. We are children of the day, 1 Thessalonians 5, 5. We belong to the day, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. And so we should walk properly, whether we're at home or here at church, whether we're at work or at school, whether we're at the store or at the ball game, whether we're alone or with others, with fellow believers or with unbelievers, we're to walk properly as in the daytime. Not in sins of addiction or sexual sins or social sins, as the note in my study Bible puts it. Not in sins of addiction like orgies and drunkenness. Not in sexual sins, sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in social sins like quarreling and jealousy. Those are all examples of what he means by works of darkness. And we're to cast them off. We're to walk properly not immorally. Listen to 1 Peter 4, verses three through five. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
Or perhaps you've thought of Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, of course, it's important to understand that we struggle with these things, even after we're converted. The fact that we're called to cast them off actually assumes that. But those who do them without a struggle, without repentance, without confessing their sin and turning to Christ for forgiveness and transformation, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Walk properly, not immorally, Paul says. The third contrast he draws in the next verse is between Christ and the flesh. Between Christ and the flesh. Look at verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So we're to put on the armor of light and we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told in Ephesians 4 to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Told similarly in Colossians chapter 3, to put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We're to put on all these wonderful things. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. God has given us a beautiful and bountiful wardrobe full of good things to put on. And in the middle of that wardrobe, at the center of it all, is Christ himself. And each new day of our lives And throughout each day, we're called to put off sin and put on Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, Paul says. Make no provision for the flesh, for that remnant of sin within. Don't feed your flesh, starve it. Don't nurture your flesh, mortify it. Don't accelerate the growth of the cancer of sin in your soul. Subject it to chemo and radiation. Don't create opportunities for sinful desires to be stirred up in your heart. We all know how easy, sadly, that is for that to happen to us 
and in us. Don't create those opportunities for those desires to be stirred. Don't cultivate an environment in your mind where sin can thrive. Cultivate an environment in your mind where sin cannot survive. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It's important for us to remember that all this comes from the Spirit of God and can be done by the Spirit of God, by the power of the Spirit. It is by the Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body, Romans 8, 13. It's when we walk by the Spirit that we will not gratify the desires of the flesh, Galatians 5, 16. So by the enabling grace of the Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, let's put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Wake up because it's daytime and our final salvation is near. Put off sin and put on Christ. That's the message of these verses. And in the time we have left this morning, I wanna do two things. I wanna share with you a conversion story and then I wanna leave you with a few questions, a few self-examination questions. The conversion story is that of Augustine of Hippo in 386, long time ago, 386 in Milan, Italy. And I wanna read it to you as told by John Piper and by Augustine himself. And it's a bit lengthy, but you'll see why I wanted to read it at the end. John Piper writes, it was late August, 386. Augustine was almost 32 years old. With his best friend, Olypius, he was talking about the remarkable sacrifice and holiness of Antony, an Egyptian monk. Augustine was stung by his own bestial bondage to lust when others were free and holy in Christ. Then he quotes Augustine. There was a small garden attached to the house where we lodged. I now found myself driven by the tumult in my breast to take refuge in this garden where no one could interrupt my, that fierce struggle in which I was my own contestant. I was beside myself with madness that would bring me sanity. I was dying a death that would bring me life. I was frantic, overcome by violent anger with myself for not accepting your will and entering into your covenant. I tore my hair and hammered my forehead with my fists. I locked my fingers and hugged my knees. Piper comments, but he began to see more clearly that the gain was far greater than the loss. By the miracle of grace, he began to see the beauty of chastity in the presence of Christ. Augustine again. I was held back by mere trifles. That's what he called his sins. I was held back by mere trifles. They plucked at my garment of flesh and whispered, are you going to dismiss us? From this moment, we shall never be with you again forever and ever. And while I stood trembling at the barrier, on the other side, I could see the chaste beauty of continence in all her serene, unsullied joy as she modestly beckoned me to cross over and to hesitate no more. She stretched out loving hands to welcome and embrace me. 
I flung myself down beneath a fig tree and gave way to the tears which now streamed from my eyes. In my misery, I kept crying, How long shall I go on, saying, Tomorrow, tomorrow? Why not now? Why not make an end of my ugly sins at this moment? All at once, I heard the sing-song voice of a child in a nearby house. Whether it was the voice of a boy or a girl, I cannot say, but again and again it repeated the refrain, take it and read, take it and read. At this I looked up, thinking hard whether there was any kind of game in which children used to chant words like these, but I could not remember ever hearing them before. I stemmed my flood of tears and stood up, telling myself that this could only be a divine command to open my book of scripture and read the first passage on which my eyes should fall. A practice that seems to have gone all the way back to Augustine. So I hurried back to the place where Olypius was sitting, seized the book of Paul's epistles, and opened it. And in silence, I read the first passage on which my eyes fell. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I had no wish to read more and no need to do so. For in an instant, as I came to the end of the sentence, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. The passage the Lord used to convert Augustine to Christianity is the passage we've been considering together this morning. The Lord used it to open his eyes to the truth of the gospel, to the superior pleasure of putting on Christ. And he repented of his sin and put his trust in Christ for his salvation. And if you're here this morning, as someone who's never done that, what better time than now to confess your sin to God and put your faith in his son. As Augustine said, how long shall I go on saying tomorrow, tomorrow? Why not now? Why not make an end of my ugly sins at this moment? Don't say tomorrow. Come to Christ today. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus for your salvation. And he will save you. Like he saved Augustine. Like he has saved all of us who've trusted in him. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ today by faith. So that's the conversion story. Now, just a few questions as we close. Three self-examination questions I would encourage you to ask yourself in light of this passage. And you can think about these perhaps some more during the meditation on the word in a minute or sometime this afternoon as you think back on the sermon. 
shine the light of this passage into your heart and onto your life? These questions will help you do that. Use it like a black light to scan every square inch and take what you find to Jesus. You can feel free to talk about these questions with each other, of course, after the service or over lunch. Parents, you can talk about these with your children, husbands and wives, you can talk about them together. Teenagers, you can discuss them together. But first and foremost, we should, I think, use these questions to examine our own hearts. That's why I'm framing them and phrasing them as self-examination questions. So very simple. Number one, ask yourself, what sins do I need to put off in my life right now? What sins do I need to put off in my life right now? Or to put it a bit differently, what are some of those works of darkness that I need to cast off today and in the coming week? What are some of those works of darkness that I need to cast off today and in the coming week? Identify those works of darkness, those sins. Name them. Put a finger on them. And put them off. Take them off. Put on Christ in their place. Christ is superior to any sin. Number two, what are some practical ways I can put on Christ each day in the coming week? What are some practical ways I can put on Christ each day in the coming week. Think about some ways you can do that in practice. Think about some ways you can pray. Think about some times during the day when you can pray. Perhaps consider some daily habits you already have in place that you can simply add prayer to. Think about some verses you can call to mind. Some of the verses from our passage today or others like Ephesians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5. Perhaps memorize them or put them somewhere you'll see them. Think about what it means to put on Christ. What does it mean to put on Jesus Christ and try to press that truth down into your daily life this week? What are some practical ways I can put on Christ each day in the coming week? And number three. It's a bit longer, but I'll repeat it a few times. How should the fact that salvation is nearer to me now than when I first believed impact the way that I live each new day? How should the fact that salvation is nearer to me now than when I first believed, how should that fact, that truth, impact the way that I live each new day? How should it impact my sense of what the mission of my life is? What is the mission of your life? What what is your life all about? How, How should the fact that salvation is nearer to you now than when you first believed impact your sense of what the mission of your life is, what your life is about? How should it impact what motivates me each new day? How should it impact what I live for? How should it impact the choices that I make? 
How should it impact my finances, my work, my relationships? How should it impact the way I treat my spouse, the way I parent my kids, the way I go through suffering, the way I respond to suffering in my life? How should it impact my thought life? How should it impact my, even my feelings and my affections? Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. In fact, it's nearer to us now than when we started the sermon. That should impact the way we live. We should live in light of the certainty of the second coming and the possibility that it might be today. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you help us to do all that you call us to do in this passage? By your grace and for your glory, we pray in your name, amen.